You know how clock conscious I am. Say Facebook? Yeah. Yeah. She, a woman reached out to her and she was um, she was contemplating suicide. And she um she asked me to pray for her, she, and she barely knows her and she was talking to me and said, You're about to pray for her and she was like, Let me drop off my kids first and then and she invited her over and gave her her number. And she had kids and you know, it was just amazing. And, and that was yesterday and today, this morning you know, she gave her the um the curtain. I hear he will I hear he will rescue you from death. Jesus loves you. And he's surrounded you by a church body that feels the same way he does? Uh, there was a time in Solomon's day where silver was so common people didn't think of it as much. It'd be easy to take for this for granted, this kind of thing. But if you've ever been outside of it, you get pretty excited to be inside of it again. Yeah. It's a good thing. Don't, don't take your church for granted. The people sitting around you are amazing. They're the sons and daughters of God. That's an awesome thing. They're the sons and daughters of God on days you like them and on days you don't like them. They're the sons and daughters of God when they agree with you and when they disagree with you. They're still, they're still the sons and daughters of God. Amen. Yeah. Uh, you ready now, John? All right. John's got the best shirt, by the way. He's not wearing it tonight. He wore it yesterday. It says, I know karate and two other Japanese words. Isn't <laughs> that great? <laughs> All right, let's get going. Uh, this evening is August 11th. It's 2010. Our message this evening is called All God's Children. Not all my children, all God's children. Uh, it's a popular or common phrase for people to say, come on, we're all God's children. They're usually saying that, uh, expressing a need for you to be more tolerant uh, of evil or dismissive of wickedness. Tonight, as we let the Scripture examine our hearts, I'm hoping that all of us come to the conclusion that there, are, in fact, are two categories of children. And the criteria for these categories is somewhat surprising, even when you've been in church all of your life. When someone says, we're all God's children, no, this is, uh, this is not correct. And you're going to see that in, in the Scripture. It's correct to say we're all uh, God's offspring, if you want to. Paul affirmed that in Acts 17. But we're definitely not all his children. Turn with me to 1 John. We'll be in the third chapter. Tell me when you're there. And I found out there was an informant, a snitch among you, that sometimes when people yell there, they're not really there. Oh, now you're going to feel bad if you're saying accusing things tonight. I'm warning you right now. All right. So we're in 1 John. If you hit the book of Revelation, you went too far, make a left. 1 John 3, here comes verse 7. Dear children, 
Do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. People have often had a very difficult time with 1 John. They'll say uh, that while it's an easy book to translate in the Greek, it's a hard book to understand. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that we find it hard to understand because he's very matter-of-fact. And people would rather you take ten minutes to tell them something that takes one minute because we feel better as we all slowly come to the same conclusion. John was living in a day that I think it's important to realize. Most scholars place this book between 85 and 95, and a few even later than that. If you think about what was happening at the very end of the first century, not only did we have a, a Roman monster coming into power named Diocletian, who was killing Christians in Ephesus by the boatload, but this is also the time period in which all of the other apostles that John started with, all of the originals, have been martyred. John is the last surviving apostle at this point. He was there on the day that Jesus was crucified. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus walk out of a grave and was the first to arrive at the grave and see the pile of grave clothes. He was there when the spirit of Jesus returned and he felt his character and his presence on earth in people for the first time since the crucifixion. He watched the church do things like come and lay their property at the feet of the apostles. He saw every man act with his brother's interest in his heart and all things held in common. He saw the church grow sometimes by 3,000 in a single day. He saw his friend's shadows heal people. He watched blind men who were begging outside of temples rise to their feet in strength. Some in history call him John the Revelator. But I want you to think for a moment tonight what it must have been like to watch the church go from the zenith of its power in its very early days to the time period that the book of Revelation describes in the second and third chapter. Whether Ephesus or Sardis or Smyrna or Laodicea or whichever church in Asia Minor we're addressing, there was serious and rampant sin. The climate that 1 John is written in is a time period in which the church needs discernment. They need discernment because they're in the midst of serious ambiguity. Men who are claiming to be of Jesus, book of Revelation says, are actually of a meeting of, of Satan. A woman who is teaching in one church the secret things of God is actually about to be punished by Jesus in a way few even know is in the Bible, wrapped on a bed with pain. There are people who are preaching for false gain and teaching sexual immorality. They're likened unto Balaam. There's amazing, horrible things going on. There was accusation from one church to another, accusation against apostles in their work. There was prophet preaching. There was 
rebellion, not unlike Korah's rebellion, going on in the church. After all, who really is the authority? False doctrine was creeping in on every side. And in the midst of that, our brother John writes an epistle to cut right to the chase. You can say the right things. You can go to the right places. You can hang around the right people. But if you do not do righteous things motivated in love, you do not belong to God. You belong to the devil. The litmus test for the two categories of what is and is not God's children, children of God or children of the devil, starts and ends with the motivation for your actions being loving. I'm going to show you an example tonight in the Word that I've misunderstood for about 17 years. I don't do that a whole lot. But when I do, I, I want to be the first to step right out and tell you. I have just missed a huge portion of this scripture that is such a blessing. Before I do that, I want to tell you that when you are reading in Hebrew and you see the word son, it's bar. If you see daughter, it's bat. And when you see bar or bat, it doesn't always mean that they are your progenitry. Sometimes it simply means they are so much like you that they could be considered your children. When we say we're children of Abraham, no, there's only one group of people that are children of Abraham. We're just, in a very Jewish sense, counted as children of Abraham because we're very much like it. Okay? Y'all follow me? Okay. Turn with me then to Genesis. I want to show you a story that you're all familiar with and see if this doesn't knock some dust off of it for you like it did me. Tell me when you're there. There. I just wanted to see who said there, there. before I gave you the scripture. <laughs> this is Genesis 4, verse 1. <laughs> you prophetic scripture finders. Y'all are amazing. 4, verse 1. Pretty familiar story. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of Yahweh, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Before we go much further with this, these are two pretty religious men, aren't they? I mean, one of them's going to have a full-blown conversation with God here in a few minutes. They're both bringing offerings to the Lord. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Where was it dictated that they bring offerings to the Lord? It's not written. Not written. It must have come from some relationship with Him. It must not have had to have been revealed from a mountain and a prophet giving it to them. They must have been close enough to the Lord to know that He wanted something. Maybe they had even seen Him make a sacrifice when he made skins for Adam and Eve. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Both men were committed enough to bring an offering that could be considered religious, but God's approval was on one and not the other. Now it's okay that you answer me tonight. Just what have you been taught most of your life? God accepted Cain's offering or accepted Abel's offering because it was 
Because it was blood. Because it was fat. That's very good. That's exactly what I have taught. I see great merit in it, and yet I think I've missed the point. We have often been taught and leaned upon this scripture as one brought the right offering, the other did not bring the right offering. So God looked with favor on one, and He didn't look with favor upon the other. I want you to read this sentence with me. You can read it in your mind. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. I want to submit to you today that two men can bring the very same offering into a church. These two, it wouldn't have mattered whether Cain brought a lamb. There was something about Cain that God did not look at him with favor, while there was something about Abel that even if he may not have gotten the offering quite right, after all, we have no Mosaic law here to give them dictates, God looked upon his life with favor. And since our God is not unfair, it might be, might be worth looking at why God looks at a man rather than the offering. Keep your finger here because we're coming back. Turn with me to Matthew 5. This would be the Beatitudes. What's most important about the Beatitudes, saints? That you be them. In Matthew 5, now you've got to be happy when you say there. In Matthew 5, there! I found it! Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23 for me. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your gift. I want you to hear this. There was nothing wrong with the gift the first time you brought it. That's why when you come back, God will receive it. So what was wrong then? Was it the gift at the altar or the man that was at the altar? It's the man. Now, I've heard many a preacher make a joke that says, if you have something against your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go to him, but leave the gift. <laughs> Shame on all of us who have said that. God will not accept an offering that is not given from the right kind of heart. The gift was acceptable after the man did what the Lord told him to do. It was not acceptable while the man was sitting there knowing his brother had a grudge in his heart against him. Did you notice the man didn't even have a grudge? He just knew his brother did. What a high standard that is. Turn with me to Matthew 23. Then we're going back to Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. Those Bibles are faster than mine. I need an Allison transmission in it. Matthew 24. I'm sorry, 23. How about this one? Woe to you, teachers of the law, 23, 23. And Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, 23, 23. Mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. When we're looking at Abel, when we're looking at Cain, we need to understand that God looked first at the man, second at the offering. How about the widow who brought her mite? Why was that an acceptable offering? 
Was it the amount? When we say it's all she had, is that because it's the highest amount she could give? Or is it because the woman wanted to give all she had to God? Do you understand the difference? I've thought most of my life that somehow or another Cain got this procedurally wrong. I knew that there was more to it than that. But then I began to think about God's Word, God's law. These differences in these offerings cannot be accounted for with Scripture. To say, oh, well, God wanted blood and He did not want grain, He did not want fruit, is to ignore all the rest of the revelation of what God says. I know you've heard it preached. I've probably even preached it or taught it to you. If you have notes in your Bible, excuse me. Sorry. I'm learning just like you. In Leviticus 2, God requires the Israelites to bring the produce of the soil, and specifically grain. In Leviticus 19, He requires them to bring the fruit of their trees to Him. So can we then say that God doesn't like grain? He doesn't like fruit? The man was a farmer. I said, well, it symbolized his self-sufficiency. He brought what he wrought out of the ground. You ever raised livestock? What does that symbolize? Man, you have to see them birth. Sometimes with cattle, you have to help them. You have to feed them. got to do all kinds of things. Does that not symbolize self-sufficiency and strength? I mean, you can make something out of this if you want to, but it misses the point. In Cain's reaction, we begin to get a hint that maybe this was not an isolated event. Maybe there was something habitual in his life about this. You hear in Genesis 4, verse 5, But on Cain and his offering, in other words, Cain and the offering Cain brought, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. When you find out that you're out of the will of the Lord in some area, what is your response? What is a righteous man's response? A righteous man with joy says, Lord, I am sorry. I'd rather be stricken in the face than find myself in this position. But a religious man is simply angry that you don't see him the way he sees himself. See, I think both of these men were deeply religious and would pass for anybody's church today. But in their hearts, we know that one of their actions was not motivated by his brother's best interest. And how do we know that? Because when he found out he didn't have the Lord's favor, he killed his brother. He hated him. And he killed him. Let me ask you something. The things that you do for God, are they motivated by your brother's best interest or simply doing what is right? So when Eric do the same thing, well, they can be. And yet I suspect these two men could have brought the same offering to the same place and one found favor and another didn't. Their motives were very different. Cain's reaction is habitual. He's unhappy because his method to approach God, not his offering, his heart, would never result in something God was pleased with. Our king is looking for you to do something. It's found in Genesis. It's found in Matthew. It's found in all of the law, and it's found in Jesus' summary of the law. He's looking for a love for him that surpasses everything and is only nearly equaled by your love for your neighbor. What a strange thing. You can pass every doctrinal test of every weird church on this road, including our weird church. 
And yet the only person that can really answer the question of do you sincerely carry, care about your neighbor's welfare is probably you and God. See, when we're in here and we're worshiping and we're, we're learning about the Word, when God fills you with His power and gives you divine gifting, there's a great question. What is it for? Is it to better enable you to do His work by loving and caring for people? Or is it simply for some kind of exaltation for you? Is it just one more spiritual notch in our belts? Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? You know, he doesn't say Cain was frowning. He says Cain's face was downcast. You almost get the impression that there was something oppressive on Cain that you could see. I've often made jokes about this being a smile or a lack of smile. And I think there's some merit to that, and yet somehow I think it was more than that. Have you ever been able to look into somebody's eyes and see? There is not the joy and the freedom of the Spirit here that there should be. Mm-hmm. Oh, they could be saying all of the right things. Most of the time they're telling me, yes, Pastor, I discerned exactly what you just told me before you told me. Which is another way to say I have no need for your correction in my life. I've already got it all together. Mm-hmm. I see these things, and yet sometimes you can't quite put your finger on it. Praise God, he installed a gauge right on Cain's face. (laughs) Yeah, you ever had one of those cars that you couldn't tell when it was empty? So you had to count the miles? Yeah, I've had a bunch of those. No jokes about Ford's. Just been through a terrible trial. There was a gauge right on Cain's face. I want you to realize that the first thing God ever said to a man is you were free. Very first thing he ever said, how cool is that? The first time they're ever out of the garden, though, first time he's ever speaking to a fallen person. You know what God says? Why are you so angry? Why is your face so downcast? Very similar to what Paul said to the Galatians. Who stole your joy? What happened to all your zeal? There is a gauge, and somehow it shows up. You can even smile and be downcast. There is something that is oppressive that comes when our lives are not fulfilled by meeting our brother's needs. You were made in a way that God designed you to love him and your neighbor more or as much as yourself. He designed you that way. You will never be happy as a selfish person. This is the great lie of the world. And we watch them accumulate and build bigger barns and accumulate and build bigger barns and accumulate and trade in wives and get new cars and on and on and on. And they are still downcast. The most exciting times they have is destroying the most brain cells and calling it a party. The only road to serious fulfillment in the kingdom is learning to have our actions mirror God which are selfless. They're other people's best interest in our heart. This is what is truly fulfilling. So, well, I'm not just a people person. You need to be very careful about saying that. You can say, I may not enjoy thousands of people in my life, but to say you're not a people person is to find blame with your Creator because He has told you, you must love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor is yourself, and we are not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings. We're talking about actions. Actions of loyalty. Actions that put the other person's interest before your own. We'll get into that here in a minute. Isn't it interesting that God tells him, 
But if you do not do, I'm sorry. Uh, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Cain, if you do what is right, I'll accept you the same way I do Abel, who does what is right. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching right there, and you must master it. It's funny, the Apostle Paul wrote an entire chapter of Romans on mastering sin. He wrote the sixth chapter to teach us to die to sin, to live to Christ, and yet it is in the very first message God ever gave to a man after the garden. He said, you must master this. One of the big problems is that Cain really didn't own up to it. Instead, he was just kind of angry that God could see it. What is your reaction when people see something in your life that you didn't want them to see, or that you don't agree with them that it's there? Anger? Contemplation? You know, Proverbs 12 says, he who hates correction is stupid. Let me tell you, I've been stupid. It's not a horrible shame to be stupid. It's a horrible shame to stay stupid. Some not-so-wise but accomplished man in our movie history said, stupid is as stupid does. See, when we put ourselves in this position, you are condemning yourself to this position. The religious man who does everything right and yet his heart's motivations are not right will never please God. And when people try to bring that to surface and you get angry. <clears throat> well, Proverbs 15, 13. Don't turn there. I will not lie to you tonight. A happy heart makes the face cheerful. A happy heart does what? Makes the face cheerful. I'm happy. I'm happy, I just don't show them. I'm worshiping! I just came from a meeting, praise God. You people out there, shut up! I'll come. Praise the Lord! Come on now. Let's think about that for a minute. You just came from a meeting place where you met with the presence of God, or so you charismatics believe. But when you walk out... Got to go to work again. A downcast spirit is a sign that something is wrong in your heart. So you don't understand the oppression that I'm under. I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's get help. Let's get help. But let's not spend weeks, months, and years of our lives this way. Religion will allow you to do that to the point where some of these sickos that come from Italy like to beat their bodies and call it godly. I read the same King James scripture and began to buffet in my body. In the end, Cain had lived a life that did not put others before himself. I'm going to prove that to you from scripture here in just a minute. So he was unacceptable to God no matter what he offered. Selfishness and sin were mastering him, and the best gaze to his heart was the one God installed on his face. We need to be careful about being downcast because it might get you cast down. Proverbs 21.2 says, All the man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs his heart. You see, all of your ways can seem right. All of your offerings can be right. You can stand up and say, I don't drink. 
I don't cuss, I don't smoke, and I don't run with girls who do. I don't know if anybody actually says that. <laughs> and yet there be a condition of your heart that is not right. In fact, the Pharisees were a religious revival movement in their day. They were set as juxtaposed to Sadducees. Sadducees believed no angels, no demons, no resurrection. No books outside of the first five because they talk about our position. The fact that this, the Pharisees embraced all of them, embraced angels, embraced spiritual things, embraced the resurrection, a return to all 39 books of what was then the canon. They taught that the highest study, the highest goal of God was the personal study of the Torah, that this was God's aim in your life. Every one of you would have embraced them. They were the evangelical movement of their day. Their doctrine was right 99% of the time. That's why Jesus said, they sit in Moses' seat. Do whatever they tell you, but do not do what they do. Something was wrong with their hearts. They no longer had their neighbor's interest as higher than their own. Instead, they loved their flowing gowns and their phylacteries and the best seats at the table. They just wanted to live well, you know? 1 Chronicles 28.9 is a stunning warning. I, I promise I'll read it to you. This is in the middle of the verse. The verse is about Solomon, but the part I wanted to tell you is, For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. Our God not only has the ability to discern what's on your mind, why it's on your mind. Come on now. You can lie to yourself. I do it. I do it. I tell you, there was a time that I wanted a white Chevy Silverado with a 350 in it, had an extended cab, bucket leather seats. Uh, it was everything I could want. I threw out fleeces. They were fleeces that were sure to come to pass. Like if I touch water, my finger will be wet, you know? <laughs> told myself all the good reasons that I wanted it. A man's heart has the power to deceive him. And somehow or another, Cain not only thought he'd get away with this, he thought God was unjust in pointing it out and unfair in correcting it. All you've got to do is spend some time in the church and you'll find that very same spirit all over the The best possible thing we can do, very best possible thing, they stand back and say, are my actions motivated by sincere, deep, undying love for the other person? Or am I just fighting to be right? Am I fighting to be viewed a certain way? All of mankind can be grouped into two categories. Children of the devil and children of God. Which do you think Cain fell into? I'm not saying that you or anybody you know is a child of the devil saying they show serious potential. Let's go back to John 3 now. Yeah, 1 John 3.11. We're going to be there for most of the night. Isn't it just like us to read about Cain and Abel? See the first murder in history? Something that goes down in history called the Way of Cain? and intellectualize the offerings rather than the people's hearts? Isn't it just like us? Isn't it just like theology to do something like that? 
This is exactly how men can stand by and go, this man cannot be of God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He helps somebody on the Sabbath. When the theologians have set in and God's spirit and our discernment have been removed and replaced by the intellect of man, then what happens to us is we're at the mercy of men who claim to be smarter than us instead of a God who simply, richly wants to motivate you in the simplest of ways to love Him and love the people around you. I want to bring this concept home that it's not about the gift, it's about the heart. And that there's only two categories of people that men fall into. Start with me in the 11th verse. This is the message you heard from the beginning. You know how you say the beginning in Hebrew? You don't, do you? It's bare sheet. When you want to say in the beginning, and you then translate that later into uh, Greek, we get Genesis. My point here is this is not really any different than saying this message you heard from Genesis, we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil. Why did he murder him? Because his actions, plural, were evil. This doesn't mean that he made a single mistake and offered the wrong offering and then decided to kill his brother and became evil. It means that his actions prior to all of this were evil and the ultimate expression of it was hatred towards his brother. It's a funny thing. Something's gone wrong long, 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 long before in somebody's life than when you catch them in some way open sin. It starts with caring more about what happens to you than your neighbor. It starts by caring more about being right than edifying. It starts by caring more about yourself than the guy around you. All of the other things, fits of rage, drunkenness, all of those horrible things Paul mentions, orgies and the like, all of that stems from one thing. Selfishness. Selfishness. So the gospel addresses this in its core. When John wants to cut through all of the malarkey that's happening all around him, he says, let's boil this down to its simplest concept. If you do what is right and you love your brother, you're of God. If you do not do what is right and you do not love your brother or you hate your brother, the love of God cannot be in you. And by the way, if the love of God is in you, you cannot continue to sin. Yes, you may sin, but you cannot continue to sin or else the love of God is not in you. This is as blunt as, as to the point as could possibly be. And it was just as hard for them to read it as it is us. All of the what ifs rush in. But what if this? But what if that? Well, let's boil it down to who are you acting the most like? Who are you a child of? Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil. And his brothers were righteous. Well, certainly his brothers weren't righteous just at the sacrifice. I mean, or it wouldn't say actions. It would say his action. Poor dude's last action. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. How do we know it? Because we can quote Romans 10, 9, and 10. How do we know it? Because we speak in other tongues. 
How do we know it? Because we cast out a demon? How do we know it? Because we go to the right church? How do we know it? Because we cried at an altar? How do we know it? We love our brother. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to look at you strange if you always have warm, fuzzy feelings about me. That's not biblical love. I don't think anybody in this church has done more study on biblical love than the dying household. It's a pet project for Mandy, and I think she's right on target. She's gone back to some Hebraic studies that really, that really have some merit. When God loves, he's talking about a mutual loyalty, a reciprocal feeling of trust. He's talking about a, even another way to say faith. Sometimes we have boiled down love to, oh, Steve, when I see you, I just light up inside. Really? We have a Western romantic idea about what love must be. I want you to understand that the Hebrew people probably did not lay in bed after 20 years of marriage, look over at each other and say, do you love me? They expected it to be something. Anybody ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? I guess we have a generation that's passed it. Uh, three or four heads in here. Praise God. A wife looks at her husband after... I don't know, they were older than Methuselah, and says, do you love me? And he is shocked that she asked, hurt that he asked. He's like, of course, I've provided for you. I've been your husband all of the... How could you ask me such a thing? In other words, they looked for deeds to demonstrate it, not floating, flirting, emotional feelings that come and go. Love your brother. How could you demonstrate that? We're going to find out in a minute. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. It is death. Whether you've killed Abel, whether or not you have committed a murder, it is death to dwell on something other than your brother's best interest. So why is the world unhappy? Well, they're reaping the wages of their sin. This is true, wages of sin is death, but it all starts with selfishness. In fact, every once in a while, some lost guy becomes a philanthropist. I have a hard time saying that word. And he finds some measure of joy when he learns to do something that is godly, and that's give away. In fact, they find some measure of peace in it. And unfortunately, all too often, it becomes the religion. I'm good because I give. No, 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 no. If God puts you in right standing, He calls you good, and you have a responsibility put your brothers before your own. But if you just give, you know better than somebody who tips a waitress. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. We're going to keep reading this in a minute. But religious but evil actions led to murder as opposed to loving actions that will always lead to life. Need to know, though, they both fell within the confines of religious. No murderer, no hater, no person with an absence of love in their life will ever inherit the kingdom. That is an interesting doctrinal test. If you had to determine beforehand who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, we might have gotten all kinds of answers like whoever loves Jesus. It's not enough. You cannot say that you love Jesus and not love your brother. Well, who is my brother? Didn't we already have that question? Well, how do I love him? What was the answer to that question? 
Suppose a man was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Y'all remember the story? This is how we love. Where in that do you go, oh, I'm just overwhelmed with a great emotional feeling for him. Didn't say one way or another how the Samaritan felt about the man. Felt about it. Just describes what he did for him. This is how we know what love is. How do you know what it means to love your brother? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. I'm going to tell you that this scripture falls into three categories. The supreme example is Jesus, period. You want to know how to love? It is whatever Jesus would do. So don't look at me and say, Jesus will forgive me if you will not forgive someone else. Don't do it. Because your love is whatever Jesus would do for you. Whatever Jesus has done for you. And if you say that He'll forgive you, but He won't forgive that person, or you won't forgive that person, His love can't be in you. I didn't say that. He did. He even prayed it in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We know that Corinthians says love keeps no record of wrongs, but we do it anyway. We know it says love always trusts, but we just can't do it. Why? At what point do we decide the word is worth it? At what point do we decide to actually be what we proclaim? You know, Christian is a big title. It means like Christ. He is our supreme example. Here's our commission. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The example is Jesus has already done it. The commission is you also are called to do it. Who is a child of God? Who is a child of the devil? Who will lay down their life for the others? So, well, I'll do it for Jesus, but I won't do it for you. Wrong answer. As a pastor, I hear this one a lot. Well, if Jesus tells me I'll do it, why do you make me your pastor? I just don't believe you're hearing from God. Okay, but you need to consider you might need to go shop for another pastor who will tell you what you want to hear. But sometimes you're wrong. You're right. Pray for me. You sure that's the case, though? Better be really sure. How do I carry out this commission that I'm given as a Christian? If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity of him, how can the love of God be in him? The supreme example is Jesus laid down his life. The great commission is that you're called to lay down your life. The practical carrying it out, the practical means to do it, means that you put your brother's need before your own need. How do you know who a child of God is and who a child of the devil is? The child of the devil, now let's just think about toddlers for a minute. All right, You can put this right in your mind. The child of the devil will grab the ice cream cone and pull it to himself. The child of God will go against his neighbor and give it to the one next to him. Now let's multiply that out. What does it look like when you're 40, 50, 60 years old? It doesn't look any different. It's just harder to see because we hide our intentions. All of your ways seem right to you. Mine do too. But the Lord will weigh your heart. Are you screaming, keeping the ice cream cone, slapping everybody who comes close? Are you willing to give it away? See, this in a nutshell is what it means to walk with God. I've taught eschatology for years. I can right now pick up the book of Daniel and without stopping we can go from the first verse to the last verse and I can expound on them as long as you will listen. But those are not the deep things of God. The deep things of God is at the end of the day do you fight for what's yours or do you give your life away for Jesus? 
Verse 18 probably cures the biggest deception that the world has ever accepted. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. If people meant, I love you, as much as they say, I love you, it would be a beautiful world. But we have pacified our conscience by saying the words when the actions are not present in our lives. In fact, watch this. Did you hear about Brother So-and-so today? Brother So-and-so really screwed up this time. I mean, I mean, we'll pray for him in a minute, but look, this brother, I mean, he's got such a bad problem. If people knew, they wouldn't hang out for him. I mean, I love that brother, but, hmm. no, you are murdering that brother. Hmm. You are killing his reputation right then and there. Say, no, 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 I was telling the truth. What's the devil called sometimes? How about the accuser of the brethren? You think if he were standing before God, he's not. And I'll read you that in a minute. He's been cast down. He's not there. You stand free from accusation. But if he were standing before God, how many lies do you think he can tell God without God knowing? I mean, how much wiser, how much smarter, how much more omniscient do you think the devil is than God? I'm glad I got no takers for that. So he's probably not lying to God. Probably telling him the truth, but with the wrong motive. guy told me, I, I, look, I, I, I don't know why everybody's so upset. I, I hit him with a stick. That was true. My pastor at the time, who was older and wiser than me, said, did it have Louisville Slugger written on it? Shame came all over the man's face. He said, yes. Oh, he told me the truth. He just hit him with a stick. But it happened to have been a baseball bat. See, you can murder by telling the truth. It's not enough just to say you were telling the truth. And you can love with words, but actions is really where it counts, isn't it? How about a husband that slaps his wife? I'm sorry, baby, I love you. Slaps her again. I'm sorry, baby, I love you. I'll never do it again because I love you. Slaps her again. How long before she's talking to you to see if she can move in? Because he says one thing and does another. Do you think God can do much? You think we can say we love our brother and not act like it and he doesn't notice? <coughs> of course he can. Of course he cannot. Dear children, let us not love with words or with tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If you do this, even if your heart condemns you, God will not condemn you. I think probably we need to move to a closing. But I want to talk to you before we close about a great draft that is going on. The king of the universe set a supreme example. He loved you and your neighbor. Maybe that's how we should say it. Not for God so loved the world, but he so much loved my neighbor that he gave his only life. He already set that example. He's given you a commission. You ought, ought also to love your neighbor enough, love Jesus enough to give your life for your neighbor. Say, but what does it look like? Put his needs before your own, and then you will be called the child of God. That might be how we should start to put our litmus test. I stood in a church one time as a little boy. 
They will know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Yes, they will know we are. I don't think anybody in the first row liked each other. <laughs> there are a thousand people in there. and I, I, The very first time I got born again, I went to the baseball game. They put me on the church baseball team because I, I softball, because I could hit a softball further than any of them. There was a fight that broke out at the very first softball game I went to. But they will know we're Christians by our life. So, well, that's so obvious. And those people didn't have the Spirit. But how much worse is it if we do have the Spirit? How much worse? There's a draft going on. The king of the universe is looking for men who will play on his side. And his side loves even our enemies. Let's God work out all the details. We just show him love. That's how you know you're a child of God. You're working on his team. You love, meaning you show trust, kind actions. All of the things Corinthians 13 says to your neighbor. Maybe before I tell you the whole story about God's team, maybe I should tell you Revelation 12.10. It says, The accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night before our God has been cast down. He no longer has the opportunity to accuse you so he's looking for people who will do it for him. When we stand, and maybe we're telling the truth, but if y'all knew, y'all knew Steve, y'all knew about Steve when I knew about Steve, I'm doing the devil's work for him. I'm murdering. I've chosen the way. Okay. Hebrews, however, the seventh, verse, seventh chapter and 25th verse says something else. It says, He then lives to make intercession for you since He cannot die. Since Jesus rose from the dead, He's not like other high priests who could only make temporary intercession. Jesus is always interceding for you. You want to be on His team? You want to love? Intercede for your brothers rather than accuse them. Say, but wait a minute. As a pastor, as an elder, as an esteemed charter church member, as a first row sitter, as a back row sitter, whatever it may be, whatever position you have, you say, I have a responsibility to let them know where they're at. Yes, but what is your motive? See, because intercession means that I go between these two warring parties and I say, hey, brother, brother, don't listen my peace. The way Jesus made intercession was he laid his hand upon God and laid his hand upon man and he made peace between the two. Is that really our motives when we tell our stories? Is it really our motives when we're hanging out with each other? Is it really our motives when we just share that you know, extra little detail they needed to know? You know whether or not you're being a child of the devil or a child of God in the moment by whether it's intercession or accusation. Sometimes we'll never admit to love or hate. But maybe it's easier to see if you boil it down to intercession or accusation. Can you really say that the goal that you were aiming at was to help them get right with God and man? If it is, you pass the test. If that's not the goal, if it's anything else, you need to know it's not love and it doesn't come from God. <clears throat> Matthew
Matthew 7 got me saved. And Matthew 7 has got this unique scripture. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom. This blatantly, patently means not everybody who's religious, who's attended religious services, maybe not everybody who's spoken other tongues or had a warm, fuzzy dancing experience is going to enter the kingdom. But only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And what do we know in the most... Ba I don't know what I'm called to do, Eric. I don't know what to do next. I don't know. I don't know. Here's what you do know. You have to love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor more than yourself. You do know that you have to put his interest before your own. But it's hard. That's right. That's why most don't do it. Those people responded to the king of the universe by saying, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we prophesy? Cain could have turned around and said, didn't I bring you an offering that a few, few thousand years later you would beg for from people? You'd command? You'd kill them if they didn't do it? I don't know what Cain would say. I don't like to put myself in his camp. Didn't we do the right things? You can do all of the right things and not have your brother's best interest in mind and go straight to hell. That's a horrifying thought, isn't it? It's not when you turn it around, though. If you get none of the things right, if you never get all of your doctrine straightened out, but your motive is to help your brother out of a love for Jesus, the text. That's not so scary, is it? I want to read to you Jude. I'm going to read to you Jude, then I'm going to close with 1 John. This is Jude 5. There's only one chapter in Jude, so I'm speaking about the fifth verse. Though you already know all this, sorry saints, all of us who try to be inspired by the Lord, we tell you things you already know. I want to remind you, as do I, I want to remind you, that the Lord delivered His people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Not everybody who left Egypt, not everybody who was saved from slavery, not everybody who was baptized in the Red Sea, not everybody who followed the Holy Spirit in the cloud made it. Not everybody who ate the heavenly food made it. Because some didn't believe. And the angels did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their home. These He has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change, for judgment on the great day. Not even the angels are exempt. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. The interesting thing, when we say God was just in bringing His judgment on them, <clears throat> but He's not just in bringing judgment upon us. I had a discussion with somebody today about whether or not the tsunami, there's been a bunch of tsunamis, but I'll let you guess which one, was of God or not. You know, is it an act of the devil or is it an act of God? I think it's funny that theologically everybody will say we're sinners who deserve death, but when death happens we say it's unfair. There's not a single person there, not one, who deserved anything better than death. Every day of life that God gave them was precious. And now they're all giving an account for their deeds, whether they were good or bad, done in the body. Was it God? Why do we have such a problem with it if it was? Why would you have a problem with it if it's God and Haiti, or God and Katrina? Why would you have a problem with that? 
because we think our default is to be blessed by God. And the default is that we are depraved monsters of sin who are being changed into saints. We deserve death and have been lavished with grace. When you change your mindset to that, you're thankful for what you did get instead of blaming God for everything that you didn't get. You might even be willing to overlook when somebody doesn't see it quite the way. Or says, even if you don't understand, please just don't. Because everything in your life was a present anyway and not owed to you. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring the slanderous accusation against him. Michael, when dealing with the devil himself, did not accuse. But said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. People speak abusively against whatever they don't understand. I'm going to give you a word of warning. If there's a spiritual authority anywhere in your life and you don't understand what they're doing, be careful about speaking abusively against them. It might just be that you don't understand and not that they're bad people. Extend the same courtesy to your neighbor on your left and your right. Who may ascend God's holy hill? He who casts no slur upon his fellow man and who has clean hands. Psalm 16 says it. We just don't do very good at living it. And what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Hear this verse 11. Woe to them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Canaan. Why? Did they pick up a rock and bash in their brother's head? No. They just did it with words. They just did it with self-interest. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. I want you to understand that there is a relationship here. The way of Cain starts with selfishness. It turns into things done for your own profit, Balaam's profit. You will begin to twist God to make yourself right, everybody else wrong, and profit yourself in any other way. Its ultimate expression is chorus rebellion. You will fight against everything that is established of God and claim that you are just as established of God and be saying it while the earth is swallowing your life up. I've watched it time and time again. It is a downhill slide. It starts with the way of Cain, which is selfishness. It moves into Balaam's error. You begin thinking that you have a right. After all, you're just as gifted as those other people. And before long, you are standing against everything that God put in your life to help you. And the earth is literally chewing your life up. And you don't recognize it. These men are blemishes at your love feast. Where are they? Where were they? We were not talking about lost people. We were not talking about demoniacs escaped from a prison. We were not talking about anybody other than the church. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. <clears throat> What's this next word? Shepherds. Apparently someone pastors. Who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain. Does that seem like a strange expression to you? Clouds without rain? Because a cloud is supposed to have rain. 
You know what it's similar to? A Christian without love. Jesus said it another way. If the salt loses its saltiness, what is it good for? When you stop being what you are supposed to be, <clears throat> I don't want to sound too incredibly profound, you're not that anymore. <laughs> when you stop acting like a Christian, when the motivation of your heart stops being what is God's heart, then you're a child of the, child of the devil, even if you say all of the right things and live by all of the right doctrine, but don't have the right motives in your heart. Cain was there offering offerings. He was having discussions with God. But he bashed his brother's head and went along. Our last scripture. We close with this. Oh, by the way, since those men are twice dead. Only thing that I like twice in this world is Oneida's twice-baked potatoes. <laughs> but to be twice-baked from a heavenly perspective... Not a good thing. It means you experienced hell on earth, a selfish life that caused you to be downcast the whole time. As well as the fruit of a selfish life, which is a selfless eternity. Selfish eternity. You get all the desires of your heart. You get the daddy you always wanted to rule over you. 1 John 2.28. We're going to read through 3.3. Please read this one with me. You there? And now, dear children, continue in Him. I'm going to read this like I were reading it to you, okay? And now, LCMF, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. If you, LCMF, know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us at LCMF that we should be called children of God. And LCMF, that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now LCMF, all of us, we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, everybody at LCMF shall be like Him. For we shall see Him, i.e. understand Him, as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself, just as He is pure. I didn't preach these things to you tonight because I live free from concern about them in my own life. There's not much more convicting message than I could preach more than accusing versus interceding. I get mad enough sometimes to burn you up. Every once in a while it's good that we retreat to our corners and pray. There's more Eric in me than I would like. Having said that, we're daily laboring to purify our hearts and our thoughts because at the end of the race, we get a reward for one thing, helping our brothers reach their calling, and that's it. There are no uh, spiritual reports that go to the king about our church attendance. There are no pats on the back for butts that warm seats. Doesn't happen. We get a reward for one thing. If we present you before the king, holy, spotless, blameless. That's what we get a reward for. We get a reward in a manner of speaking for when you do that for other people because we had some part in your life as others had a part in ours. 
That is our goal. And the reason we teach this message is to get our hearts right and your hearts right because we are bound for ministry in our daily lives. Every one of us in our ministry starts with loving your neighbors. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Stand to your feet. Summer's almost over, which means I'll stop preaching earlier. But right now I'm taking advantage of it. You already know this about me, so don't come and tell me, did you preach that message at me? My answer will be the same for everyone who asks. Yes, it was absolutely for you, personally designed. I preached it because I thought I needed it as much as I know that you need it. That's why we preached it. Amen? Amen. Mighty God, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that your word contains honey, and it contains bitter peppers. Lord God, even you turn those peppers into honey when we learn to do what is right, though. I ask that you would help us circumcise our hearts. That we could look not just on the surface of things or upon fleshly things, but that we would see as your eyes see. We trust that you will give us discernment, Lord God, and that we might do what is in our neighbor's best interest. Our desire, Lord God, is to rescue and not condemn. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.